Welcome back to Radical Ones. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with my producer, Phineas. Phineas, what's happening, man? Who are we talking to today? Today, we have a very exciting guest. Her name is Jess Morales Rocchetto. She is the Civic Engagement Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and the Executive Director of Care in Action, where she spearheads advocacy and electoral campaigns for two and a half million domestic workers across America. She is a multi-hyphenate like so many of our guests and does so many different things, but those are just a few. Yeah, she she's amazing. I am increasingly obsessed with these people who are able to build coalitions out of like subsets of our population who in of themselves as individuals, maybe part of a cohort that feels powerless, but then you you organize them. And it turns out there's millions or tens of millions of them. Pastor Mike at Black Church Pack is is a good example of that. And Jess is another great example. You know, care workers, you know, the day in and day out of of taking care of other individuals and, and represents people helping people at the beginning of their life and at the end of their life, right? We're talking about people who are taking care of seniors and taking care of children. I'm sure a lot of them don't feel like they can shape policy in and of themselves. And but Jess and and also her partner Ajin Poo at Domestic Workers Alliance found a way to make this group powerful. Yeah. I mean, a big part of this infrastructure bill that Biden's introducing is dedicate to care workers. And that is thanks directly to not not only because of, but in large part because of the work of Jess and uh, her partners over there like Aijin. And so I, I'm in awe of her. And I had a lot to learn from her. This this reminded me a lot of our episode with Jaha. You know, we're going into it. I was really, really going in blind. I didn't know much about care work, how it was defined, who was a care worker, who wasn't, how large that cohort was, what obstacles they were facing. And so I'm always grateful when we're able to have on guests. All our guests teach me something, but but really these types of conversations are always awesome to have for me. How would you describe the problem that you're solving? Problem number one is really around care, which is how do we make care a collective responsibility in this country from what we call from the cradle to the grave? So when a mm. person is born, how do we make sure that you have parental leave and paid time off if you're a mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whatever? And then how do we make sure that as you get older, there's childcare to support your family to make sure that you're getting the care you need after school while your parents are working hard. Make sure that it's not too expensive, that you can actually afford good quality childcare. And then as you get older and you're an elder and you've provided so much, how do you make sure that you can you know, live your sort of elderly years with dignity in a way that supports all the awesome stuff you've probably done in your life? And in particular, mm. how to make sure it's affordable for you so you're not like eating cat food. Yeah, we don't want people eating cat food. I imagine in America, we are particularly struggling here due to the lack of community. I've, I've been lucky enough to travel you know, to a bunch of different places in that three or four generations in a household thing is so 
real and solves some of, probably not all the issues that you, that you all are tackling, but some of, right? You have the grandpa, grandparent generation looking after the kids while the mom or dad are out and working. I mean, I wonder, as you've thought so much about this, where does America stand in this? Is that a big driver in the challenges that we face? It definitely is. Um, at Kieran Action and the National Domestic Workers Alliance, we talk about how this is a multi-generational problem. So before I started working on care as my job, I definitely had had experiences with the care system, right? My, my parents racing to pick me up from daycare when they were like working late and it closes, but work is not closed. <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. and we were like the last kids, like that's experienced the care system. My grandfather was in hospice as, um, when I was in college. And, and so we experienced what it was like to have to put him in um, a nursing facility, you know, like a home. So like 100% I had care, but I didn't think about it as like a thing I needed to worry about. You know, I'm 34. Right. I have knock on wood, a long life ahead of me. You know, my parents are relatively young. We don't have kids yet. So like, I'm not thinking that I really need to worry about this. But as I begin to work on care, what I, what I understand now is this really is a problem that is essentially happens the moment a child is born. We are not providing mm -hmm. care for them and we have no plan for to provide the care that they will need or that their family will need as they continue. And it is actually because we view care, um, you know, providing child care or helping grandma as she gets older as the responsibility of every individual family. What are you going to, what are you all going to do to make sure that grandma gets the care she needs and your sister comes and helps and your mom comes and helps and, and you each kind of take a shift. And, you know, that is so beautiful, but also it's really hard and really expensive. It's probably likely that most families don't have the ability to actually everybody take a shift because they're working one or two jobs. Grandma needs around the clock care. What are we supposed to do? That coupled with the rising cost of care, it's getting more and more expensive, it's getting covered by less and less health insurance, means that people are looking around, they're trying to do the best they can for you know, their, their parents that are getting older or their um, children, and they have like no support. So yes, absolutely, it's a family responsibility, but our kind of collective community in the country actually needs to see this as the responsibility of everybody to make sure that not that it's like, not that it's easy. I don't think people want it to be easy, but I think people probably could use a little bit of help. So my, my follow-up to the first question is oftentimes like, what's the history behind this issue? You know, I talked briefly about kind of the eradication of like tight-knit communities that's happened in our country. There's also, I'm sure, important inflection moments around industrialization. And then in the 50s and 60s, when moms started going to work, and even when we had nuclear families, all of a sudden you had two working parents. If you were lucky enough to have two parents in the household, there's also obviously like the 80s and 90s crack epidemic and, and the rise of our hyper punitive justice system and mass incarceration that left a lot of people with one parent as well. And so I wonder if you were to trace back the important moments in this crisis and, and where we are today, am I touching on some of them? What am I missing when I kind of say that back to you? Another really important thing is it's kind of like the flip side of something really good which is that people are living a lot longer. So mm. the leader of the domestic worker movement is my boss, Ai Jen Poo, and she um, talks about this term of the sandwich generation. And so those are people who are sandwiched by care. They have to, they're waiting longer to have kids. 
and Mm -hmm. their parents are living longer than literally ever before. And what that's doing is it means that they need childcare and elder care at the same time, because we don't have structures in our society for people to live until they're 80 years old or 90 years old. That's that we just, that hasn't kept a pace. And what that, what that means is that you have people, we have, have, this is a new problem. And so you, you know, people want now um, because they're living longer to do something, you know, that's called live in place. So they would like to get older, not in like a nursing home without their family or their grandkids or all their stuff that they're used to. They actually want to do that in place. Well, that is, we want yep. that to happen, but the system doesn't support that because what we mm. have done is actually sort of like put older folks like out to pasture a little bit, right? We like send them to totally. a home and that's, they do their thing there. And people have to work a lot more. And the mm. demands on them at work are intense. They might have less vacation. They don't have like a pension. So they're working longer mm-hmm. than they would otherwise, which means that the need for childcare, and as you said, more people, you know, now two people are working in the home, that need for care has greatly increased. <laughs> and it will surprise you not at all to learn that people want to make money off of that. And so the right. insurance companies have made it so that Elder care is like capped um, at a level that does not reflect people living a long time. So it Mm. becomes very expensive to care for your elder um, folks in your family. And then childcare, you know, because this has truly been the work of women for so long in the home is just completely devalued. And so you have like the workers I represent, domestic workers who are paid very low wages but families are also saying, I can't afford any more than this. I don't make a lot of money. We don't right. have like a plan. And so just like at every level, we've really been failed by the way the system works and the way that we view and value care. What do, when you talk to people in leadership and people who maybe oppose providing more support in some capacity, what do they expect people to do? Yeah, when I talk to people who are against us, they say, one of the things they say is that we don't want to intervene in a family affair. People are going to figure out what works for their family, and we should not try to impose anything on them. Um, mm. That's one. That doesn't really track, though, because you're not saying, you're not saying, hey, you now have to go down this track. You're saying, in fact, you're saying the opposite from what I understood is like, we need more flexible options because some people want to stay home. Some people want these solutions, et cetera. So, so I I don't know about that, that first pushback. That feels a little disingenuous. Okay. I think it is. And I, I think it's about feeling like the government is going to decide for people how they're going to take care of their loved ones and I feel like my hope is that the government doesn't make decisions for people, but that people have more options other right. than all of us should just like take on another job, basically of being a caregiver, which is a yeah. job, <laughs> which is a job. Right. So that's one big one. The other big thing that people say is that it's just too expensive. The government can't afford this. Um, you know, this is what Social Security for. This is what Medicare and Medicaid are for. And people kind of just need to go within the allotted amount that they get for that. But as I said, um, you know, for older folks, we just, there's a cap. You, there's, it's literally called a lifetime cap that you can spend mm. in Medicaid. And well, if that cap was based on when people were living to like 
60, 70 years old, you can imagine that you can go through that lifetime cap pretty quick. The other thing is that, you know, the insurance companies and nursing home facilities are really big business. And they are absolutely incentivized through the subsidies that come from being able to run these huge nursing facilities. And as those facilities, you know, begin to go out of fashion a little bit, those businesses are are threatened and health insurance companies are feeling like they have to put out more money for care for um, and this is not just elder folks, but also disabled people with disabilities are another group of folks who right. need a lot of care. And that makes it really tough because what they are expecting, frankly, is family to come in for you or you just to like kind of deal with it, which means that right. maybe you could only afford for grandma to have somebody who comes in in the mornings, but she actually needs care pretty much 24 seven. And there's about six hours where you're just hoping to God, she doesn't slip and fall and break her hip or people with disabilities who may or may not be able to afford, you know, the kind of care that they need. And so for, you know, an X amount of time, they're basically immobile. What are they supposed to do when they don't have their caregiver to come in? Cause they actually can't afford for that third shift for their caregiver. And to me, it's just really unacceptable to assume that people, because they can't afford it, should just accept a lesser, literally like just a lesser life existence um, and lesser quality of life. It's basically you you become like a worker robot. Like it's not even like a lesser. It's just like there's no it's I imagine for many like the idea that this is like life is almost unrecognizable. You're moving from shift to shift, doing the hard work to your point of caregiving and then. And, and if you're on that kind of poverty treadmill, the, the role, it's not like you're doing exciting work when you go off to work a lot of the times, right? These are also like difficult, unrewarding jobs. Yes, very, very difficult. And the average domestic worker makes between thirteen and $15,000 a year. So the person who is in between grandma breaking her hip and you is making sub-poverty wages, actually. Can we just, just to reset for a second, because I think we like dove, dove into it, just, and you brought up that people are dealing with handicapped people are also care workers. Can, can we def- define the whole ecosystem that we're talking about? So I think you, you talked about young people, uh, handicapped people. Um, Probably the biggest one that we missed there is like early childcare providers. So there are people mm. who are nannies of folks from a very young age or, or are, you know, your uh, your caregivers now for your children. So nannies, you know, once your kid gets older too, that's, that's right. probably the other really big is like, it's a lot of this is about, is about child welfare as well. I wonder, um, in this zoom era, this work from home, a lot of this changed for a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of these folks lost their jobs because if they're the roles that we were just talking about. Caregiving has completely changed in some ways for the good and in some ways for the bad. So I'll start with the bad first because I like to end on a good note. <laughs> the bad things that have happened are this completely decimated the care industry. People were very understandably afraid of having their nanny come or even their elder care worker come if they were, you know, when they were trying to social distance or, you know, depending on how tight they were keeping their little pods. And so what that's meant is that, um, the majority of caregivers that we work with have lost all income. And just as a reminder, these are folks who are already making sub minimum wage. So this was, this has been very, very difficult. You know, 
these stories I've heard over the last year are just absolutely heartbreaking. You know, I remember a call where one of our, our workers, she, she showed her phone and it was logged into her bank account. And she showed us that she literally had one cent in her bank account. That was like how dire the situation has been for her. And we've heard lots of stories like that about having to choose between going to work or feeding their families. So that's the bad part. It's completely decimated our industry. People don't have work um, and it's really scary. The good stuff that's happened is we completely changed the way we think about care in this country. If people undervalued care before last year, one year of absolutely no childcare has really changed people's minds about the value of their nanny, right? Like one year of living your house in just constantly making a mess and never leaving has made people realize how much they value their housekeeper. You know, we've heard incredibly heroic stories from elder care and home care workers who, you know, in the very beginning of the pandemic, they were the only person that would see their elderly patient and were able to identify if they had gotten COVID and get them to be able to get care quickly. And, you know, that person maybe would have died without them. Or people who, you know, were making the choice of caring for their client with COVID, even at risk to themselves, because they knew how important it was to make sure that they were safe. And so, I think that like it, it's really exciting to me to see this new opening of just completely changing the way that we think about this because I'm hopeful that it will mean that the work that caregivers do will be more valued, but also that you know there will be more investment in care. How did you get introduced to this issue? And and, and I imagine there was a time between you kind of recognizing it as an important issue and you being like, I am going to now lead this movement. Um, and what did that what did that journey look like? So I used to work for the AFL-CIO, which is the largest federation of unions in this country. And that's how I learned about iGen, my boss, who is just like one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. So I knew about her work, but I didn't, I didn't really know as much about the Kind of caregiving policy side. And when I came to work at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, my job was to build out Care in Action, our political arm, and, and really like build up our political power. And as I started, you know, one of my very first things I did in the job was to go on the Hill and, you know, sell this idea of like care and care infrastructure and this is the problem of the future. And the thing that blew me away is that over and over and over again, I would talk to people and they would, what they, it would be like, okay, so I'm gonna tell you all about this. They'd be like, don't worry, I know all about this. My uncle Frank is 85 and we've had to figure out how to make it work with him. My mom's moved and and every, you know, like United States senators are telling you the story about how their caregiver is the reason that they can be a United States senator because mm-hmm. they have a child with a disability and their caregiver is like the most important person in their family. Um, let's talk about you. Let's talk about how you're going about solving it. Yeah, I mean, we had a really big breakthrough um, with the announcement of the American Jobs Plan. So, Who, who's we? Let's define we real quick because we touched on it a little bit. So, we have the, the Domestic Workers Alliance and we have Care in Action, both of which you are instrumental to. Uh, do you want to define what those organizations are? Absolutely. At the National Domestic Workers Alliance, we represent 2.5 million nannies, house cleaners, and elder care and home care workers who provide the work that makes all other work possible care. And then at Care in Action, we represent those women and and really all working class women of color to build political power so that politicians understand that they really need to feel accountable to those voters and to the care agenda that we're trying to pass. 
And so President Biden announced the American Jobs Plan, which is his big recovery package for how to get the economy on track. And in during his campaign, he had promised a $500 billion investment in care infrastructure. So all the things I've just been talking about. And that, that is a completely unprecedented um, level of investment. We've never had anything like that. Even the idea that care is infrastructure is like a huge mm-hmm. change. And so when he announced the American Jobs Plan, he announced that they were, were making a $400 billion investment in care infrastructure, um, which is, you know, not exactly $500 billion, but like, I'll take it. It's fine. Still an unprecedented level of investment, right? Can you define when we talk about $400 billion into care infrastructure? I think you've done a good job defining who care workers are, so I can probably guess. But just like, what are the big line items in care infrastructure as we start to divvy out that $400 billion? The basically the biggest is one of the things I talked about was that lifetime cap on elder care um, support. That lifetime cap means that wages for workers go down and that people over the course of their life have to put tons out of pocket basically just to, to die with dignity. And so it puts a huge investment in the life in Medicaid that allows for lifetime cap, which is very, very important to our elders in this country. It provides a lot more support for people who are family caregivers um, to help make it a little bit easier for them. And then also some support for workers themselves to be able to think about how to provide more rights. Domestic workers are not allowed to unionize, that they're forbidden from unionizing. Um, There are only two work sectors that are not allowed to unionize, and it's farm workers and domestic workers, which goes all the way back to slavery. What is the history? Well, I mean, without going too deeply into it, why, why are domestic workers not allowed to unionize? It's, it's super easy. When they were trying to pass the Fair Labor Standards Act, southern states, to agree to basically be okay with labor rights, did not want to have to pay for um, what they would have called back then their help. So literally, this is like this is like southern reconstruction, effects of slavery. Like it just it's all right in there. They didn't want to have to pay for sharecroppers and farm workers. So you know the the vestiges of slavery. Um, and they didn't want to have to pay for the women who worked inside their home, taking care of their children, cleaning their houses, making their food. That bill, or I don't know if it's a bill that was passed. I don't know what to call Biden's things, the act. Um, you all had your fingerprints all over that. What does that work look like? Like, what does the care and action work look like that then influences a politician to do something like this or politicians to do something like this? Yeah, I mean, a huge part of it is we ran a massive voter engagement program in the 2020 election. So in 11 states, we talked to almost, I think it's 3 million voters. We we did what's called um, voter contact. We had 30 million voter contacts, so massive, like huge, huge program. Um, and so, you know, it's very unglamorous, but it's like a lot of spreadsheets. It's a lot of phone calls. Um, it's a lot of like thinking about, well, who else knows this person that can call this person? And it's just like a lot of pressure uh, to elected officials and to the White House. So now he you're right that he sort of like made this act, this this plan. Now it goes to Congress and we have to pass it through the House and the Senate for it to become law. What role does like an organizer have during that process? Like essentially, you've already voted in the people you're going to vote in. Is it just about being like, hey, we're watching you. There's a lot of us and we're watching you. Like, is it accountability? Are there any other tools in the tool chest? Yeah, you know, it's not just I mean, definitely is accountability, 100 percent. But I think the other one is a lot of times, um, particularly in the early days of government, 
you know, they're still trying to figure out where the lights are. Like they have no idea what's yeah, going yeah. on. And so part of it is saying, here's, you know, we spent a whole bunch of time studying this and talking to experts. We're going to bring right, right. experts for you to talk to. And totally. here's what we think is possible in like six months, a year, five years, 10 years to sort of help people see what like the runway could look like. And then also, you know, how much it costs matters a lot uh, because that is, that determines, that's the whole ball game. Like, can we afford it? And I am not the person who does this. Well, so it's beautiful work you're doing. Uh, if you're as successful as possible over the next decade, everything keeps unfolding in your direction. Let's say this is the beginning of a really beautiful story for you. What is true about the world in 10 years? We value all work. I'm almost really going to cry when I say all this. Um, we value all work. We recognize the leadership of women of color as voters, as leaders, and as workers. And we believe that it is everyone's responsibility, especially the government's, to make sure that people are cared for from the moment they're born all the way up until they die. Mm, beautiful. All right. Well, the last thing we do is just give you the floor. So if you have anything else, to, there's no... There's no prescriptive direction here. Whatever you want to share or say, it's all you. Mm, I think the only thing I didn't talk about, which I should, probably should have, is about women of color. I think that's like the secret sauce. We're an organization that's by and for women of color and specifically poor and working class women of color, which is just very unique. And I feel like when, when you have all women and when you have all marginalized women and you approach that the work that we do both in elections and in you know like kind of advocacy and organizing it's just like it's just a lot better frankly <laughs> we're yeah. like we're just really good at it we're consensus builders and we're leaders and we're people who bring along our whole family and as we've built out yeah. care in action in our electoral program i've really seen that to be the case and I feel like to me, there is something that's really special about that that we should try to understand so we can emulate that leadership style so we can have more people get that invitation because I think that if we follow those women, it's not that they, I think sometimes people get like real saviorly about it. like they'll save us or they, they have these secrets to unlock. But I actually just mm -hmm. think it's that the, um, I talk about an invitation lot. Organizing is, a, is an invitation to people to say, come be on our team and come make the, the transformation that we're trying to make happen. And my experience with women of color as voters and, and women of color workers is that they're already making things happen. They're already the winning team. Yeah. <laughs> All we have to do is, is get in line and, and follow yeah. them. Exactly. I really appreciate your work. All you're doing the notorious JMR, as you will henceforth be known. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.